0: Welcome to the Smart Talk Series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk Series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in January of 2016. Our talk is hosted by our former president, Andrew Mazzoni, and Dr. Richard Wolf. Dr. Wolf is known as America's top Marxist economist. He earned his bachelor's in history from Harvard, two master's degrees in economics and history from Stanford and Yale, and his Ph.D. In, from Yale University as well. Dr. Wolf has taught both economics and international affairs for decades. He began his teaching career at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and eventually moved on to the New School. He appears in numerous journals as a critic of conventional capitalism and is a regular contributor to the Monthly Review, a socialist magazine. He even has his own radio show where he breaks down current issues through a Marxist lens. Dr. Wolf and the Henry George School discuss post-World War II economic policy, how the U.S.-China relationship affects the global world order, and why real wages stopped growing at a sustainable rate after the 1970s. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Dr. Wolf, thanks for joining us on Smart Talk. Uh, as a leading uh, light on the left, I'd like to get your opinion on a number of things. First things, first thing is the state of the country as you see it economically. I know you're lecturing on this almost on a weekly basis, and, and uh, I've heard all about your elections, lectures from many sources. So give us an appraisal, a quick one, on where we stand. You know, we have the candidates you know, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, all purporting to be able to solve our problems, which, which, as you know, are deep and fundamental. Why don't you give us an idea of your view of how deep and fundamental the problems we have are?
2: Well, to be brief and to get right to the point, I think the major function of our presidential elections um, is to distract our people from the seriousness of the economic problems, and not to provide solutions, or to put it differently, the solutions they offer are to tangential problems, because the overriding problem is too frightening in general uh, for it to be part of the political discourse. Let me briefly explain. For most of the history of the United States, from the beginnings of our time as an independent nation, when we revolted against the British up until the 1970s, we were what you might call an expanding, successful capitalist country. We had fantastic soil, climate, rivers, oceans, distance from Europe that was in many ways Helpful because it allowed us to do things that might have been much harder uh, had we been back in the old countries Um, We got rid of the people we found here. That was not so nice uh, to be as polite about it as I can Uh, and that gave us a kind of a blank slate to Construct an economic system here that proved to be profitable that proved to be growth-oriented Uh, And it delivered, in a sense, um, a successful investment climate, you might say. It had really only one problem. And that problem was what we in economics call a labor shortage. There simply weren't enough people to allow the expansion that the natural conditions and that capitalist structures made possible. Uh, Any chance that the uh, people we found here would become workers uh, disappeared with the hostilities between arriving Europeans and Native Americans. So the problem of labor shortage became the dominant shaper of economic development in a capitalist US. And that meant two things. In the South, the labor shortage had to be solved by African slavery. Which it was, and in the north and Midwest and eventually everywhere else, it was solved by a succession of waves of immigration. You basically pleaded with Europeans to come to the United States and to be workers here, uh, and the only way, the only way to do that was to offer them rising wages. So for really roughly 1800 to 1970. American capitalism lived, survived, and grew by paying a rising real wage to its workers. It's the only capitalism that was able to do that. And as a result, it was able to secure the incoming waves of immigrants that made the whole thing possible. In the 1970s, all of that changed fundamentally and irreversibly. Basically, the labor shortage ended. And it ended for three or four basic reasons that came together in the 1970s. First, a vast new technological breakthrough, the computer, that replaced huge numbers of people with calculating machines. Number two, The very success of the United States in raising wages created a growing gap between high wages in the United States and low wages in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And basically, in the 1970s, you might say that American capitalists had what I like to call a eureka moment in which they came to the sharp realization that with the modern technological breakthroughs of the jet engine and of the internet, they basically could move production from the high wage locations, North America, Western Europe and Japan, to the low wage locations that had been built up over the last 200 years in China, India, Brazil and so on. And so, Business and jobs left the United
1: States. What if the uh, the American working class at the time of the '70s uh, were able to impose, in effect, a uh, no free trade a regime in the United States? Basically, we we're wealthy enough, uh, powerful enough. Uh, We—it's it's our markets that these low wage countries were selling into. We could have, in effect, prevented that, uh, put barriers up, trade barriers. After all, we were a tariff country for 200 years during the time of lucky growth that you outlined. Why didn't we or couldn't we do that? Because the
2: the companies that dominate the United States uh, politically, the larger companies, the uh, Fortune 500, the uh, S&P 2000, whichever ones you want to pick. They were the ones driving, (coughs) excuse me, they were the ones driving the export of jobs. They stood to gain huge profits, basically by substituting a cheap labor force overseas for an expensive labor force here. They didn't want that to happen. It could have happened, you're quite right, it could have if there had been a mobilization of working class people wanting to preserve their jobs if we had had a strong socialist or even social democratic kind of constituency. But precisely because we once had that in the 1930s, and that's what got us the New Deal, it was destroyed after World War II. You demonized the communists, you demonized the socialists, you wrecked the labor movement. You, you dismantled, you disassembled the political powerhouse that could have done precisely what you say.
1: Well, let me say, say, say this. But in doing that and creating that low-wage offshoring, they still didn't solve the demand uh, problem. Where were the, where were the markets going to be to buy... The 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 output from the low wage inputs that these companies had. In other words, the, the American workforce would successively lose purchasing power, losing their high wage status. Who was to buy the American products in that kind of a regime over a long period of time? Over a long
2: period, I think you're quite right. Over a long period of time, this is a serious problem. But let's be real honest with one another that's been a serious problem of capitalism from day one every capitalist let's remember is incentivized you might say by the structure of competition
1: to try to economize on wages well if you think about it the 200-year open frontier finessed that problem behind everybody's back an open frontier you know they couldn't screw wages down. Yes, you. I think you're, you're correct. We were a high-wage country to lure Europeans in, but we were a high-wage country because we had an open frontier. And the American people, I don't think, can really understand how lucky they were to be able to have this open, wide-open frontier and natural resource uh, uh, nirvana. Now, now that they've tried, that they've run out of that, they're trying to bring low wages in. They kill the purchasing power of the markets that they want, and they become the absorber of everybody else's output. Well, I think that, I think basically
2: that you're right. I think basically that the situation is that the leading corporations, whatever they might think, uh, are being forced by the nature of how capitalism develops, to focus themselves not only on the rising profits from production and distribution relocated to the cheap wage areas of the world, but that they are discovering that if you lower wages in the United States or keep them stagnant while they are rising in places like China, India, and Brazil, which they have been, that you're also creating in China, India, and Brazil the only growth areas for markets that the world has, and that if you're going to continue to be a leading company, you not only have to produce where the wages are low, but you have to focus your sales effort on the areas where the market is growing, which is those same areas, and that you're leaving the United States behind. The irony for me, and I believe the political Achilles heel of the United States, is that the very same profit-driven capitalism that produced those 200 years, the 18th and 19th centuries of the United States' economic growth, that same profit-driven capitalism has now bid the United States goodbye We have better business elsewhere, and even if the market abroad is smaller than the one we had here, that's the market abroad that's growing, that's where we're going to focus our attention, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy.
1: Now, if we talk about uh, the financing, the financial boom and bust of the last, uh, let's say, 20 years. Uh, I suppose you would argue that uh, that was the price that China and everyone else would pay, lending us the money to create credit on our own real estate so that the purchasing power that we talked about was lost on jobs would be maintained for a reasonable period of time until the transition took place. And if that's true, then there's no real way to come back from the American middle and working class.
2: When wages stopped rising in the 1970s, for the reasons we went through, it was a kind of trauma for the American working class. And I use the word trauma in the psychological sense, because a society like ours, that has become used to rising standards of living for nearly 200 years, gets to be feeling that it lives in a charmed place, Gets to be feeling that if you're religious, God really loves the United States because he allows people to come here from relatively poor countries, work real hard, raise their standard of living, have their children live at a higher standard than they themselves enjoyed, etc., etc. If you have that for several generations, as we did, and then you suddenly bring it to a crashing halt, as we also did. You're confronting a population with a traumatic problem, which is only made worse if it cannot be spoken. The presidential political parties at the time were as distractively focused away from the problem then as I believe they remain uh, today. And the result was that the American people had to go through this trauma without being able to name it as such, to talk about it, and to work out a collective response. So instead, every American working class family had to find a way to cope with the end of rising wages. And to make a long story short, there were two essential ways Americans did that. Number one, they did more labor. You now if you can't raise your wage per hour, one way to solve it is to do more hours. So starting in the 1970s, men got a second and third job. Women, particularly white uh, women, went out of the household and began to work. Old people came out of retirement. And teenagers discovered the need to work Saturdays and after school. We became the population in the world that did more hours of paid labor than anyone on the planet. The second thing every American family did was to hold on to the fantasy of a rising standard of living when your wages no longer went up to pay for it by becoming pioneers of a new kind. We became pioneers of debt the American people began to borrow money on a scale and to an extent that no working class in the history of this planet had ever done before. Mortgage debt, automobile debt, credit card debt, and in the latest in- incarnation, student debt, requiring an entire generation of young people to load up on debt simply to get a bachelor's degree, which is less of a ticket to a good job than it has ever been in our history. The debt crisis was the solution to postpone the trauma of the 1970s. 2008 is the crash, utterly predictable, utterly built into this system, when you can no longer manage this crazy disconnected and dysfunctional capitalism. Historians will write back about this period and they'll have to work hard not to fall off their chairs laughing at the self-destruction of the United States undertaken with the blind confidence that Americans display often when confronted with crises of this
1: magnitude. Uh, Dr. Wolf, of course, you know, the American people borrowed the money, but you had to have enablers. You had to have the government supply the means, the credit, uh, the Federal Reserve, the the, the fiat currency allowing uh, debt to be uh, compounded so that the American people could not have done this without the complicit uh, knowledge or enabling of the U.S. government here.
2: Absolutely. the
1: the government in the
2: United States had to play its accompanying role, its facilitator role. It had to do that monetarily through the Federal Reserve, but it also had to do it with its tax policies, with its trade policies, with its use of its government offices around the world, with the military control of 2,000 bases around the world. I mean, the United States government was a complicit partner in all of this, including in the decision of the leading political forces to pay fundamentally no attention uh, to, to the crises and the contradictions uh, of this process. And let me be real clear, I've been a professor of economics all my adult life. The complicity of my profession in the uh, failure to analyze this problem in the willful ignorance of the evidence accumulating against the policies that were dominant, that there is no excuse, there is no justification. This is a profession that was bought off by the existing status quo every bit as much as the government was, and bears therefore the same responsibility. Uh, we as a profession were kind, teaching everybody <clears throat> that letting corporations go wherever they want, whenever they want to, is some kind of uh, guarantor of efficiency and growth and all this other nonsense which we could have and should have known better.
1: But let's look at, let's take your, uh, your thesis and look at it from an establishment point of view. They're basically saying that they can cut off the American people, from their thinking and reasoning, that the, in effect they can turn three quarters of this nation into a, a a country like Brazil, and that that in effect they don't need a location necessarily as a as a as a staging area, that they can almost be virtual in the major capitals of the world and basically run a virtual empire without being grounded necessarily in any one particular place. <laughs>
2: they believe they have no choice the you know in the early days of the 1970s it was the rare company that closed its factory in cincinnati and opened it in shanghai but they made so much money their rates of profit were so high that the rest of the industry basically had to follow suit or risk being competed out of existence and they know that they know they have no option But to do that, I think the rationale that they will come up with has two parts. One, that in the end, they're going to places where wages are lower, and therefore they'll be able to produce commodities at a lower cost to the ultimate consumer. And that's why the ultimate consumer should support they're moving to wherever the wages are lowest. The second ideology to rationalize it is even more, if you like, nefarious. Well, Let's call it, for lack of a better term, multiculturalism or diversity. Here's the way this works. We need to have six Brazilians, two Nigerians, And four Malaysians on the board of directors, because we are active in all these countries, we need good connections in those countries, and we have found politicians or lawyers or bankers or others in those countries that we will make rich as partners in making uh, uh, this sort of deal. And they are going to do that, and they're going to call this process... Diversification, multiculturalism, global integration. I can come up with 12 phrases. Each one sounds better than the one before, but the basic story is always the same. This is a profit-driven activity, and it is what emerges when the dust clears. That's what has if you read if you read the financial press right now, if you read the financial press, you will see a hysterical example of this. Article after article saying that the world economy is in trouble because the engine of growth, namely the People's Republic of China, is slowing down its rate of growth. Now, at this point, I have to often hold on to the side of my chair lest my laughter propel me onto the floor. You must be kidding. The Chinese economy is growing currently at the lamentable rate of 6.9%. The United States economy is growing at 2%. Last time I looked, that means the Chinese, at the low point of their economic growth in a generation, are growing more than three times faster than the United States. And the second joke is that the reason the Chinese are slowing down is because Americans and Western Europeans can't buy the exports of the People's Republic of China. The problem isn't China. The problem is an economic system in the rest of the world that can't sustain the consuming levels that it once
1: projected. All right. Let me let me take the virtue from your coverage now of what has happened. Of course, the American people have always uh, faced the the fact that communism failed, their idea of socialism, and with all the horror stories of Stalin, KGB, and so forth, and in effect that failure probably demoralized the left uh, to a a great degree. They're arguing these were Marxist-derived systems. Although you have uh, have categorized them as I would have ca- categorized them as state capitalist systems, but nonetheless, the failure of quote communist or socialist systems uh, to to deliver the goods forced the American people, if they were even looking for an alternative, to say, well, that's not the alternative. That the fact that the Russians fell apart after after what was a heroic defense of their nation in World War II, the fact that they couldn't technologically uh, keep up, and therefore they were out-competed by the West and therefore basically disintegrated. That story resonated with the American people who said, "Okay, this may be bad, but that seems to be worse. Now, you've covered this particular problem in your theory of worker self-directed enterprises, which is your theoretical transition out of this morass between capitalism with built-in failure mechanisms and the failure of state capitalism or the Russian system, uh, right? I'd like you to comment on the American version and and perception of what happened in these so-called socialist bloc. Well, I think I
2: agree in many dimensions with what you've said. I do agree that the American people. Um, had, a, had an understanding, still do, uh, of what happened in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe uh, that led them to conclude, much as you said, that whatever the problems of American capitalism, it does, as we used to say, deliver the goods, a rising standard of living. And that system over there uh, doesn't do that as well as we do it and it has a lot of other negative uh, dimensions to life in that society, and we don't want that. Uh, I think that was um, 50% the truth and 50% hyped here because of the the Cold War and the they're bad, we're good mentality, uh, which they played in reverse on their side, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I have really two things to say about that um, to add to what you put. First, in truth, uh, and if you actually study what happened in the Soviet Union or the People's Republic of China, uh, they were very successful at becoming uh, rich industrialized countries. When the Russians made their revolution in 1917, they were the poorest country in Europe. They had a you know a 5% literary rate. Everybody worked on a farm. Uh, it, it, it was a society that was the backward part of Europe. Uh, by the 1970s, they were a global superpower, second only to the United States. It was communism in Russia that achieved industrialization. I don't think it achieved socialism or anything like that. But if you ask the question, did this society achieve stunning economic growth and industrialization through its communist period, the answer is an unqualified, yes, it did. And the proof of the pudding is that the other major experiment in that kind of a system, which is the People's Republic of China, has been doing it in the last 25 years as well. And so you can be critical, as I am, of those societies. You can reject them as models of what you want, which I certainly do, but their delivery of economic growth to a backward and poor society is, has to be admitted as their strong point, their success point. The second thing I would say is, they really were not a fundamentally different system. Instead of private capitalists, they substituted state officials. The government took over the role of the capitalist. But the role of the worker didn't change all that much. The worker came to work five days a week, nine to five, did what he or she was told by a supervisor or a foreman or a director or a commissar. It really didn't matter. Everything now has changed because the, the, the defense of capitalism, that it delivers the goods, that it raises the standard of living of the mass of people, that's no longer true. And the denial of it doesn't make it true. The fact of the matter is young people today are hopeful they can have the standard of living their parents have, and they're discovering as they look around them that the odds of being able to do that are shrinking every day. And that's true in Europe, and that's true in Japan, and that's true in North America. The solution lies in finally putting the people in charge. I like to use a simple argument. If you want the economy to serve the people, you've got to put the people in charge of the factories, the offices, and the stores that produce the goods and services we all depend on. For me, therefore, What we're going to do in the years ahead, slowly, painfully, is we're going to change the organization of enterprises. We're going to make them democratic.
1: Okay, well, let me argue here, uh, Dr. Wolf, on this particular point. I understand uh, your theory and your argument on the self-directed worker enterprises. Now, the contra-argument to that, that that you would face would be, well cooperatives which is similar to this have been tried through history and is simply not vicious enough tough enough or strong enough to compete with real competitive capitalism number one and number two the smart money the the Wall Street guys or the commissars would say we need uh, we need elite committees to guide the working and ordinary people because they simply do not have, the wherewithal to manage their own affairs. And you're always going to have, whether it's a Leninist uh, uh, view of how to run a a country or a Wall Street view of how to run a country, you must have elites giving you guidance that the ordinary people simply couldn't pull us off. And then interjecting into that, and then I'll let you run with it, they'd have to compete at the get-go with viciously efficient capitalist enterprises. So you'd have to make space for them and I would argue the best way to make space for them would be to take a Georgia's view of of capturing the rent from from nature that uh, is is really the backbone of bank lending, real estate, and so forth. If you capture that rent, the the rent by appropriating nature and use that as a common fund, that would be a fund that would probably be 25 or 30 percent of the GDP of of the U.S. That fund, if allocated, as a citizen's dividend would give plenty of money and space for worker-directed enterprises to develop and find their way to ultimately compete and and move against uh, the current uh, conditions that now exist. Your comments on that?
2: Uh, let me go through each of the three points you made. First. Um, the question of whether um, co-ops or or worker self-directed enterprises uh, could succeed in a competitive struggle with capitalist enterprises. Um, I would give you two answers to that, one theoretical and one empirical, and make both of them very brief. Theoretical. Workers who have ownership of and control of their own work activities. Have a commitment and an investment in their effectivity that is irreplaceable if you make them instead paid workers. We know that from a thousand years of human history. Workers who own and control their workplace will feel differently about it, will work harder, will be committed to it, will bring resources to it from their own minds and their own commitments that are way above what you get from a paid employee. Theoretically, therefore, I would expect them to be more efficient, not less efficient, than a capitalist enterprise, theoretically. But now let's do it empirically. We have an example. Uh, For 50 years, or now 60 years or more, the most successful worker co-op in the world is something called the Mondragon Corporation that exists in the north of Spain. It began in 1956 when a Catholic priest in the Basque region of of, uh, Spain, in the city of Mondragon, uh, said to his very badly unemployed parishioners, if we wait for a capitalist to come here to offer us jobs, we will all die of old age before it happens. And so what we have to do, said Father Arismendi, the local priest, was we have to become our own employers. We have to set up our own cooperative workplace. So with six employees, six workers, Father Arismendi, drawing around him the protection of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the dominant uh, religious institution in Spain, uh, began a workers' co-op. All right, now let's go fast forward to today, the end of 2015. The Mondragon Cooperative Corporation is now a holding company, a a parent of about 250 functioning worker co-ops. Together, they comprise the seventh largest corporation in all of Spain. They are a stunning economic success. They went from six workers in 1956 to about 100,000 workers today that work in the Mondragon Corporation. Across that time, they had to compete with hundreds of capitalist enterprises, whom they outcompeted and in many cases whom they purchased and absorbed after having out-efficiently competed them uh, in the years leading up to the mergers between them. Last point. I think that I would love to have an alliance between Georgists and us. I think your idea of using the absurd ground rent notion, the notion that as societies grow and develop the, the the accident that they compete for pieces of land that are limited while the population grows and that therefore deliver huge portions of the national wealth into the people who did absolutely nothing to create the land that they sit on other than control the the right to exclude others. If we socialize that, that would give us the funds as indeed there are other ways of collecting the funds Uh, to enable there to be a cooperative sector of our economy. Let me therefore tell you in all clarity, all I ask as an economist is that we allow the American people to have that famous freedom of choice we claim to be about. Let us have the choice between top-down, hierarchical, elite-run capitalist businesses on the one hand, and democratically run worker co-ops on the other. Let the consumer decide where he or she wants to buy their product, from which kind of company. And let the working people decide where they would like to work. In a top-down business where you're told what to do from the moment you enter till the moment you leave, or from a democratic enterprise where you're not just a drone doing what you're told, but you're actually part of the people who design what happens in the enterprise. Faced with a choice, which Americans don't have today, because we don't have a cooperative sector that they can see, that they can investigate, that they can work for, that they can buy from. We don't have it. But if we used public funds to give Americans the choice, I hereby tell you that me and people like me, we will abide by the choice the Americans make because that's how confident we are, despite 200 years of living in a capitalist system, that if finally presented with a real alternative so they can see it and talk about it and experience it, we have very little doubt where Americans will go. And in this day and age, when capitalism is not delivering the goods, we're more confident than we have ever been.
1: Okay, Dr. Wolf, I, I don't think I can trump what you've said or embellish it or change it That we think pretty much alike. Uh, I'm not, you, you're very familiar with the George's philosophy where essentially today anti-monopolists And we believe that that monopoly money should go to the citizens as a citizen's dividend. And, of course, that would give the space to really uh, enhance true democracy. So with that, thanks, Dr. Wolf.
2: Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.